This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior members of the U.S. intelligence community. Today, I have a former colleague and old friend. We kind of grew up together in the service, and actually our careers were on parallel tracks for uh, many years. His name is Jeff O'Connell. Jeff O'Connell is a retired CIA director of operations officer, a Near East Division Arabist, uh, served as DCOS and COS multiple times. He was the first senior CIA officer to go down and hold a senior position at the FBI, where he was deputy chief of their International Terrorism Operations Center. He was also chief of the Counterterrorism Center at uh, CIA. Most relevant for today's conversation, he was COS Tel Aviv from 1999 to 2002. Jeff, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks, Jim. Good to, good to talk to you. We've got a very interesting conversation here today, Jeff, and as you and I discussed off camera, I think it's relevant to give our audience just a little bit of background. I think most of the AFIO listeners will be familiar with uh, the agency's FICI, CA roles and all source analysis, but they may not be as familiar with what we're going to be doing today. As you all know, because you directly participated in the second Clinton administration, the CIA was very heavily involved in supporting uh, the Middle East peace process. And we developed uh, some unique contacts and expertise in that area. Uh, we're not going to talk about that today, but we're going to talk about a follow-on event that had us drawing from that experience. And that is the Church of the Nativity Crisis that occurred in Bethlehem in April and May 2002. Most of our viewers are aware that the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is the place where most Christians believe Christ was born. Jeff, what can you tell us about Operation Defensive Shield and what caused it? Sure. The security situation had uh, deteriorated progressively since the failure of uh, Camp David conference in uh, 2000. Tensions were rising. 2001 was a very bad year for terrorist attacks inside Israel. And 2002 didn't start off much better. In March, March 27th, the Hamas blew up the Park Hotel in a suicide bombing and killing... Uh, I think it was over 30 elderly Israelis on Passover and wounding 140 others. At the time, it was the worst attack that Israel had experienced in, in many, many years. It was clear that the Israelis would respond, and respond they did with Operation Defensive Shield, which they launched two days later uh, in an attack on Yasser Arafat's headquarters in Ramallah. Now, the objective of Operation Defensive Shield was to end the Palestinian capability to launch terrorist attacks into Israel from the West Bank. And the way they planned to do it was to surround and isolate five or six Palestinian towns and villages, uh, cities and villages on the, on the West Bank, isolate them, penetrate them, arrest known and suspected terrorists and destroy the terrorist infrastructure. Uh, it uh, was going to be a sequential series of attacks, but like everything else in life, nothing really survives contact, first contact with the enemy. How did the Church of the Nativity become involved in all of this? The Church had been used as a refuge in, in several past incidents. And uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, were uh, determined that it wasn't going to happen again. 
So the plan called for them to insert an IDF unit into Bethlehem before the assault, surround the Church of the Nativity, and keep it from being used as a refuge this time. There was a miscommunication or something went wrong, but by the time the IDF unit got into Bethlehem, the church had been occupied by, oh, 240-odd uh, Palestinians. Now, the majority of them, 200, were uh, simple bystanders who had fled the fighting. Uh, they were uh, Palestinian policemen, and they were the monks that lived inside the complex. But 40 of them were on Israeli wanted lists, and 10 of them were on their most most wanted list. The IDF unit, as it got there, quickly surrounded the, 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 the church complex, cut off all food and water, and the siege began. Jeff, as you well know, this is not a traditional role for the CIA. How did we get involved? Well, the situation on the ground deteriorated rapidly. We didn't get involved at first. Uh, but the international pressure on Israel and the Palestinians was immense, the pressure to get them to end the siege quickly and without further violence. But two weeks went by, and violence got worse. And a, an Israeli sniper killed the church bell ringer. An Armenian monk was wounded. Several people, uh, Palestinians inside the church, had, and I think one or two of them died. International pressure increased, and the European Union started a diplomatic effort to immediately started a diplomatic effort to bring the crisis to a close. But after two weeks, it wasn't making much progress. Nothing was really being accomplished. So about two weeks in, I got a call from Ofer Dekal, who was the Shin Bet, the internal security service in Israel's uh, central commander. And he had responsibility for Jerusalem. The guy got the call around uh, 10 p.m. and he said, "Look, can you come up to my office? I think we're going to need uh, the agency's help in, in in sorting this out." So I got in my car and, and drove up uh, to uh, to Ofer's office. He briefed me. Well, you might think that the agency is an odd organization to choose for this role, and most of the time you'd be right. But as you mentioned. We had been players actually sitting at the table negotiating at the during the Middle East peace process negotiations dating way back to 1996 when Clinton uh, told uh, then Deputy Director Tennant, look, you're going to lead up the, the security negotiations and underneath the umbrella of the larger political uh, negotiations. And in 1998, the Station in Israel was charged with heading up bi-weekly meetings. We call them trilaterals. It was the agency, the, the station. It had the, the Palestinian services and the Israeli services. So we had been having bi-weekly meetings. And the purpose of those meetings to do a couple of things. One was to work out the details of the larger negotiated uh, agreements. Second was to put out any the inevitable fires that occurred on the ground. Uh, third was to hold both sides accountable for to do what they said they had agreed to, to do. So for the last four years, we've been meeting bi-weekly in these intense sessions. And I think both sides trust us to be 
objective, or maybe more accurately, they both sides trusted us a little bit more than they trusted each other. But we had been there working with them for, for, the, for the last four years. So it's turned out not to be that out of choice. It was sort of a, a reasonable, reasonable suggestion to get to have us included in the in the negotiations. I got to Ofer's office around midnight. He briefed me on the security situation and on the European Union effort, which uh, he, he thought it wasn't going to work. And the way he described it to me was that what the EU was doing was with their contacts with the West Bank elites, Palestinian elites and, and the West Bank prominent families to leverage those groups' influence on the people inside the church to work out a, a, an agreement with, with the Israelis that allow them to, to leave. It's a reasonable approach, and it had one key advantage, which was it did not involve Yasser Arafat, which was uh, uh, something that uh, then uh, Prime Minister Sharon uh, badly wanted. But there were problems with it as well. It was a large, very large group of people talking to each other. There was no hope of, of, of secrecy, just absolutely none. Anything any of the participants said or winked at or thought the Palestinian and the Israeli press had put out immediately. So it was impossible for the negotiators to make any real concessions. The second problem with it was that the families and the prominent personalities, the elites, didn't, were not all on the same page. Some of them wanted the people inside the church to fight to the bitter end. And, but the real problem with it, from my point of view, was that 40 or so, the hardcore, weren't listening to the elites or to the prominent personalities. They'd listen only to Arafat, so he had to be included. So I outlined an approach which would include him uh, to, to Ofer and got hold of Washington. Washington said, go ahead. And uh, we, we launched uh, the effort. Jeff, what kind of a deal were you able to strike with the two sides? And how long did it take? Let me describe what, a, as I said, we've been having similar meetings for four years. So let me describe what they were like. We'd have them late at night inside a hotel in, in Jerusalem, usually, or Tel Aviv. We'd serve food because it'd be very late at night and hungry people don't negotiate very well together. The Israelis would come in and go through the buffet line first, and then they'd retreat to a corner of the room. Then the Palestinians would arrive, and they'd go through the uh, buffet line, and they'd retreat to another corner of the room. Then we'd sit down for the for the meeting, and an Israeli colonel or general would uh, give a succinct summary of where they thought the issues stood, what we agreed at the last meeting, and what we were there to discuss at this meeting. The Palestinians would violently object. The two sides would start yelling at each other. And for about 15 or 20 minutes, it'd be just uh, just uh, chaos. Then after that, everybody would settle down, and we'd work out whatever issue it was uh, that we were there to, to discuss that evening. That's exactly what happened at the first, first trilateral meeting to resolve the Church of the Nativity crisis. Uh, we didn't move the ball forward very far at all, but it was clear that there was a basis for an agreement. It was clear that both sides agreed 
that neither side wanted the 200 or so innocents to remain in the church any longer than they had to, uh, period. Um, they were perfectly willing to accept our suggestion that we treat this as a normal security issue and not link it to the Middle East peace process, not link it to the political Palestinian political dynamics on the West Bank, and not link it to the Israeli, Israeli elections. The problem was, of course, the 40. The Israelis wanted uh, to arrest them and put them in Israeli prisons. The Palestinians were adamantly uh, opposed, but were willing to put them in their prisons. But that, of course, was a non-starter with, with, with the Israelis. So over the course of, you know, you're dealing with a 20-year-old memory, and that memory wasn't all that great when it, 20 years ago. It, I think it took us maybe three meetings uh, and subsequent nights to work out an agreement. And the agreement was basically that, okay, they have a security screening at the door of the church. The 200 innocents would be let free and left to go home immediately. The 30 who had no blood on their hands, but were certainly, certainly terrorists, would be offered a choice. They could stand trial in Israel, serve their terms in Israeli prisons, and be allowed to stay on the West Bank if they foreswore terrorism. Or they could ex accept immediate, and I mean immediate, like the moment they took down the barricades, exile to Gaza. And a very uncertain time frame is when they'd be allowed back into the West Bank. The 10 or so who had Israeli blood on their hands uh, were offered a similar deal. Trial, imprisonment, release after you force war terrorism, or immediate exile to Europe. And again, the, that meant the, the night the, the barricades came, uh, came down. It was a messy deal, but I think it was a practical one. The Israelis were able to say they got rid of a security threat by exiling these people. The church was saved, and the Palestinians were able to say they kept their people from being thrown into uh, into Israeli Israeli jails. But I thought uh, the deal was done. Jeff, your description of the late night meetings um, really brings back some memories. Uh, I can recall some very late nights that we spent together uh, in a seaside hotel in Sharm el-Sheikh where the same thing went on for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> really? And, and just when we thought everything was uh, done and finished, one side or the other would poke the other side in the chest and we'd be off again. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Jeff, you mentioned that the deal was done, you were ready to implement and then something interrupted the deal. What happened? Well, we were sitting around watching CNN and watching the Israelis uh, begin to dismantle the, the barricades around the church when um, all of a sudden they stopped, all activity stopped, and they began putting the barricades back up. That moment I got a call from Ofer who said that uh, uh, Sharon had changed his mind. He wanted to continue with the European Union effort and he definitely wanted the uh, CIA out of the negotiations, period. And he's prime minister, so of course we, we, we withdrew. I don't know why he changed his mind that way. I suspect, and it's only suspicion, that just 
having Arafat involved in the equation was uh, was just too much for him to stomach. But that's pure speculation on my part. So some time passed, and then the agency was asked to re-engage. What was the outcome then? Yeah. Yeah, another couple of weeks passed, and the situation, the security situation inside the church and the security situation inside Israel deteriorated rapidly. And the, uh, I think at the time, for those two weeks, Israel was, two or three weeks, those, the Israel was suffering maybe a suicide bombing or a serious uh, suicide operation a day inside Israel. And the conditions inside the uh, church were, were horrible. There was no food, no water, and wounded people uh, without treatment, and a couple of dead bodies in the church. And um, during this period, uh, a group of international peace activists and a reporter managed to clamber over the barricades and make their way into the church. They had food, water, and cameras, of course, and their descriptions of uh, what was happening inside the church. It was, it was really, really awful, appalling. So I think it was more more international pressure and the pressure of this group that, uh, that actually saw the conditions inside the church that uh, convinced uh, uh, the prime minister that he really needed to uh, re-engage and, and, and get back to where we were two weeks ago. And that's precisely what happened. I got a call from Ofer. He said, look, start it up again. I called one of our key advisors. He said, yes, we have no interest in letting this go on any longer. Restart the talks. And what was the final deal? It was pretty much a refined version of the first deal. Again, NSA security screening, screening, the 200 innocents being released. The 40 divided into two groups, 30 that uh, could accept exile in Gaza or imprisonment, and the 10 that were uh, going to be exiled to Europe or accept trial and imprisonment in, in, in Israel. It uh, almost the same. There was a couple of glitches. One was the arms, of the weapons inside the church. The Israelis wanted to seize the weapons and... You know, do a forensic examination of them, and the Palestinians were absolutely opposed to that. The discussion of the weapons went on for at least one meeting, maybe two, and the second one was blasted for hours. And finally, one of the Palestinians turned to me and said, well, what do the Americans say about this? We haven't heard anything from you guys all, all, all evening. I had had it by this point. I mean, you know, I, was, I was really fed up with the uh, the agency lawyers told me that under no circumstances could our officers touch those weapons uh, because of legal consequences, possible legal consequences later. So finally, I, you know, I just looked at him and said, I think we should throw the freaking weapons into the freaking sea. And much to my amazement, the two sides looked at each other and said, you know, that's not a bad idea. So I thought we were, I thought we were through then they started or, uh, arguing about which sea, the Mediterranean Sea or the Dead Sea. Mediterranean Sea being arguably Israeli, the Dead Sea being arguably uh, uh, Palestinian. It got to the point where neither side would, would budge. 
So the Palestinian uh, Palestinians got into their convoy and started to leave. And one of my officers literally jumped in front of the convoy, stopped them, and bring them back to the table. And I said, look, if Washington agrees, why don't we have the military, the U.S. military attache's office and the Office of Mil Military Cooperation, have them take the weapons and hold them in forever? That was acceptable to both sides, and the, the agreement was made. Now, it took a couple of days to work out the details, because the EU effort had been going on lying in parallel. We had been coordinating with them through uh, Ambassador Kurtzer, the U.S. ambassador to Israel at the time. And uh, they had already figured out which countries would take which terrorists and uh, so, the, and and they worked out the logistics of how to get the uh, the exilees out of Israel to either Gaza or to or to Europe. Uh, there was only one small glitch at the last moment. Um, apparently, the EU officials forgot to inform Italy that they were taking one, but an alternative was quickly found, and uh, the uh, siege was lifted on uh, 10 May. That's a great story. I think it's also useful to tell our audience that among the principal Shin Bet and Palestinian security negotiators, quite a few of the Shin Bet officers spoke Arabic, and a number of the Palestinian security officers spoke Hebrew. And all of those guys had each other's cell phone numbers programmed on their cell phones. So they knew exactly how to talk to each other and how to get a hold of each other if they wanted to. But they really wanted a third-party presence to at least you know, provide them some cover for what they were doing. That's exactly right. Jeff, this is a great story. I'm sure our audience will really enjoy hearing it from you. What's your view on these kind of activities for the uh, agency? Clearly, it's unusual. It's not our normal charter. Do you think we should do this again? And if so, under what kind of circumstances? I think we'll... We probably will end up doing this again. We may already have uh, since I retired. But there is a danger of being directly involved in negotiations. Uh, there's a danger because you have to take a position. And there's a tendency to look at things through glasses, rosy-colored glasses that support your position. That's that's a, a real, real issue, and it, it, it needs to be dealt with. But at the end of the day, you can't let the Church of the Nativity be destroyed. really ought to make a strong efforts to end crises like this. And if the agency has the contacts, then uh, yes, I think uh, it should be used again. Well, I want to uh, thank Jeff O'Connell for sharing with us really some very interesting and exciting moments from his life and also from the experience of the agency under some rather unusual uh, circumstances. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> See you.